Good morning, everyone. On behalf of Fred Kemp, our president, uh, and Barry Pavel, uh, head of the Scowcroft Center on International Security, who really is responsible for today's event, uh, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome you uh, to today's discussion, Stronger Defense in a More Dangerous World. Thank you all for joining us uh, here today. Before I begin, I will note that this session is on the record and is being live streamed online. You can follow along on social media using the hashtag AC defense. Part of our core mission here at the Atlantic Council is to provide a prominent platform for transatlantic leaders to provide insights on how they are navigating the, the dramatic changes in today's world. And we are especially pleased to hear from our closest allies in NATO on this set of crucial issues. Analyzing and providing a way forward on key NATO issues and convening NATO leaders is in the Atlantic Council's DNA and we are truly stepping up our efforts in programming, events, and publications in the run-up to NATO's seminal 2016 summit in Warsaw. Now, today's an extraordinary honor to host the United Kingdom's Secretary of State for Defense, the Right Honorable Michael Fallon, today at the Atlantic Council. Now, given the events of recent weeks, from the Paris attacks that shocked the world to the UK's new air campaign in Syria, today's discussion could not be timelier. In just a minute, Secretary Fallon will discuss the UK's defense strategy for the next five years in the midst of the most challenging security landscape the transatlantic community has faced since the end of the Cold War. The vision outlined in this defense strategy, the Strategic Defense and Security Review, is bold, sending a clear message that Britain is revitalizing its defense posture, fulfilling its NATO commitments, and solidifying its global role at a time when it is most needed. As Secretary Fallon said when he was last in the United States in March, the UK has no intention of lowering its guard to protect the international rules-based order on which our security depends. This ambitious thinking underscores the enduring importance of the US-UK special bilateral relationship which remains a cornerstone of US foreign policy and engagement in the world today. Now, none are more qualified to shepherd this special relationship in the realm of defense and execute the ambitious defense strategy than Secretary Fallon. I would be up here all day if I were to list all of Secretary Fallon's accomplishments throughout his career in government, from his distinguished tenure as Minister for Business and Enterprise and Minister of State for Energy, he has led UK's defense ministry for over a year with strategic vision and keen political acumen. And I sincerely look forward to his remarks today. After Secretary Fallon's keynote address, we'll have a rich discussion with the secretary moderated by the esteemed Karen DeYoung, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and senior national security correspondent for the Washington Post. Once again, I'd like to thank all of you for being with us here today, making it a very ex extra special event. I know it will be a captivating conversation. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome to the stage Secretary Fallon. Thank you and uh, good morning. And I am delighted to be back in the United States, a place where I always feel at home and that I have visited many times since my first visit over 30 years ago as a young legislator, as a guest of your government. That was in 1984, 
at the midpoint of the Reagan presidency. And that allows me to remind you of something President Reagan once said, Great Britain and the United States are kindred nations of like-minded people and must face their tests together. We are bound, he said, by common language and linked in history. We share laws and literature, blood and moral fiber. The responsibility for freedom is ours to share. Our freedom was threatened by Nazi evil and our two nations united to defeat it 70 years ago. Today we are threatened by a new evil, Islamist fascism. This year we've seen its followers slay, slaying innocent Americans in a San Bernardino daycare center. We've seen them slaughter young French people socializing in Paris. We've seen them murder 30 of our own British tourists on a beach in Tunisia. To defeat this evil, we require a unity of purpose and a total gross government response. That doesn't just mean shutting down ISIS's online presence, stopping its financial support, preventing fighters from crossing borders, and building up the capacity of fragile states. It means also calling out the extremist narrative. Those susceptible to radicalization must understand that the way of ISIS Daesh is a metaphorical and literal dead end. The only item on their agenda is the destruction of our nations and the establishment and enlargement of their own barbaric realm. No one becomes a terrorist from a standing start. There is a process of radicalization involved. So we need to expose that Islamist ideology for the perversion that it is. Nor can we say, sadly, that this process has nothing to do with Islam. All of these extremists are self-identifying as Muslims. As your president said in his Oval Office address, this is a real problem that Muslims must confront without excuse. But nor must we hand a propaganda coup to them. The mouthpieces and apologists for ISIS Daesh paint their war as some kind of clash between Islam and the West in order to sow division. But the facts are different. ISIS Daesh kills more Muslims than any other group. Our anti-ISIS Daesh coalition is made up of many Muslim countries who recognize that what's at stake here is a conflict between those who love life and those who love death and chaos. So our challenge is to support the reforming voices within the Muslim community, preventing the fusion of religion and politics and stopping the slide into extremism. At the same time, 
taking pride in what our two nations offer all our people, whatever their color, whatever their class, whatever their creed, not discrimination or sectarianism, but freedom of religion, freedom of tolerance and opportunity for all. Again, to quote President Reagan, speaking here at the Atlantic Council, our consensus is built not only on what we're against, but on what we're for. We're against totalitarianism, we're for freedom and democracy, for them without hesitation or apology. And if we are not true to those values, we will not in the end discredit this poisonous ideology. Now, part of the cross-government response that I referred to has to involve the use of force. There can be no compromise, no deal with Islamo-fascists. Those who murder innocents at a Christmas party, who behead aid workers, who throw gay people off buildings, have to be stopped. That was the message from the United Nations Security Resolution 2249, calling on all member states to take, and I quote, all necessary measures to expunge the extremists. The United States and the United Kingdom have always stood side by side against terror, against Hitler, against Al-Qaeda, and now as part of the anti-ISIS Daesh coalition. From the very start, the United Kingdom has been flying missions in Iraq, has been providing some 60% of that coalition's tactical reconnaissance. And last month, our parliament voted decisively to answer the call of our allies and to lift the shadow of the 2013 Syria vote. So let me assure you today that in Britain, we are stepping up alongside our American, French, and coalition allies, bringing the full force of the Royal Air Force to bear, helping to destroy ISIS Daesh infrastructure, cut off its oil supplies, and locking on to its leadership. Our recent national security strategy makes clear, however, that ISIS is not the only danger that we face. We are threatened now by multiple concurrent risks, a resurgence of state-based threats, an expansionist Russia, and a growing threat from cyber. Collectively, these threats challenge the rules-based international order on which our joint security and prosperity depend. We are, in Britain, a powerful partner today with capabilities and reach that few, if any, of your allies can provide. But I want to tell you now that we're going to be an even more powerful partner in future. First, we're investing in stronger defense in a more dangerous world. We were elected as a government earlier this year to deliver national as well as economic security. So we're increasing defense spending. We're in fact the only major country choosing to spend 2% of our GDP on defense 
and meeting the OECD's goal of spending at least 0.7% on development, helping us to play our part in stabilizing and supporting broken and fragile states and preventing crises turning into chaos. Over the next decade, thanks to that extra investment, we plan to spend more than $265 billion on new equipment. That money will underpin the centerpiece of our Strategic Defense and Security Review, our Joint Force 2025. To respond to increasing demands in future, we will have a potent expeditionary force of up to 50,000 personnel, made up of an Army Division, a Maritime Task Group, and an expeditionary Air Wing as well. Earlier this year, some retired generals, no names, no pack drill, were concerned about the size of the British Army. Let me reassure them and you, Britain will remain one of the few countries in the world able to deploy such a highly capable division in the field. And now we'll be able to deploy two self-sustaining strike brigades alongside it. At sea, we'll have a maritime task force of new frigates and destroyers alongside, in the 2020s, the world's second most capable carrier force. In the air, we will have more F-35s online more quickly, delivering our carrier strike capability, and we will have nine new maritime patrol aircraft to help protect the nuclear deterrent that we are renewing. All this, and we are also enhancing our global strike capability with more investment into our special forces. Our new joint force will let us do more independently, but also more in tandem with you. And that's why we've made a point in this review and our new equipment plan of investing in shared platforms like the P-8, like Rivet Joint, like Reaper. And with the United States choosing to locate its European F-35 base in the UK, I look forward not just to welcoming some of you on board our two new carriers, as I was welcomed on the USS Theodore Roosevelt earlier this year, but seeing our F-35s flying from your decks and your F-35s flying from ours. So we have and will have the will and the means to respond. And as we become a stronger partner of yours, I want to see that relationship become more of a two-way street. We're investing more in you, and we're going to expect more from you as well. I want to see more contracts in the supply chain flowing from the majors on these programs through to British companies. We already have areas of shared interest, such as our nuclear enterprise. We're going to be spending some $47 billion on renewing those four new nuclear successor submarines. At the same time, as you are looking to replace the Ohio that uses exactly the same common missile compartment. We're building 15% of each F-35 that's produced from tail parts to wingtips. We have unique 
dual-mode brimstone missiles, bringing a high-precision capability to the fight against ISIL-Dash that the United States does not yet have. Many of these companies that we use have footprints here as well as in the United Kingdom, illustrating a level of industrial integration that is unique, and it surely makes more sense now for us both to benefit from that expertise that exists in both our countries. So more investment in more defense. Second, we're going to do more to project our influence around the world and strengthen the international rules-based order. Today, UK forces are involved in more than 20 operations around the globe. We're one of your few global partners. In Europe, we're your closest ally. And we've been urging our European colleagues to up their game. The threats that Europe faces on its eastern and its southern flanks illustrates the value of a joined-up response. Using our membership of NATO, the United Nations, and the European Union to protect our security. We have pressed the European Union to play its role as part of a comprehensive approach, mobilizing its economic might to enforce sanctions on Russia and to cooperate more on security across the European continent in the wake of the slaughter in Paris. None of that means giving up on British sovereignty. What it does mean is that we can enjoy the best of both worlds, free to act on our own accord with a swiftness and strength that comes from being an independent nation, but working also with a block of 27 other countries to advance our shared interests. But NATO, of course, will always remain the cornerstone of our defense. In Wales last year, your president and our prime minister urged NATO members to do more. Since then, seven countries have followed our lead in pledging to increase their defense spending. And we are, too, stepping up our leadership role, leading the High Readiness Spearhead Force in 2017, bringing six northern European nations together as a new expeditionary force and maintaining a persistent presence in the Baltic states and Poland. We're also looking beyond Europe's borders, doubling our peacekeeping efforts in Africa and strengthening our hand in the Asia Pacific. We're elevating our defense relationship with India with more joint military exercises and deeper cooperation on technology and manufacturing. We're enhancing our relationship with Japan in January, we had held the first combined foreign and defense ministers meeting in London, and next month we hold the second in Tokyo. And when it comes to China, we are very clear. We want to work more closely with China, help bind China in to that rules-based international order. But provocative behavior in the South China Sea only destabilizes the region and increases the risk of miscalculation. We want to see maritime and other disputes there settled peacefully in accordance with international law. Third and finally, innovation. 
We will have stronger defense, we conclude, through the investment that we're making in more innovation. Your own third offset strategy addresses the erosion of the West's technological edge. Our strategic review also recognizes the need to keep ahead of our adversaries in cyber, in robotics, in autonomous systems, in space. We're putting $1.5 billion into an innovation fund to help secure operational advantage in future. You've set up the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental to access innovation in the Silicon Valley. We will be launching our emerging technology and innovation analysis cell to help identify game-changing technologies. We're setting up a new center to pool the intelligence of the best brains in British business, academia, and the public sector. Next year, we'll introduce a defense innovation initiative, adopting a different approach to risk and doing more to test new ideas. But we know that when our two countries work together, we're more than the sum of our parts. It was exactly 75 years ago that British scientist Henry Tizard, at the height of the Blitz, set off for the United States on orders from Winston Churchill, armed only with a briefcase full of top secrets. That precious cargo containing blueprints for radar, for the jet engine, and for nuclear fission helped in the end to win the war. We need to build on those firm foundations. Today, we're collaborating on everything from F-35 to insect-like Black Hornet UAVs and quantum clocks. As Defense Secretary Carter and I after a, announced after our October talks, we're now going to tighten up those links, working together on emerging technology demonstrators, making better use of joint wargaming to test out new ideas, and adapting new operating concepts for a new environment. The opportunity that comes from innovation has wider applications. Defense technologies are often spun off afterwards in the commercial sector. Together, we've given the world GPS, the World Wide Web, splash-proof technology. Recently, British company Reaction Engines and BAE Systems signed a deal to develop the Sabre Synergetic Air Breathing Rocket Engine, an aircraft that will operate at over five times the speed of sound that can transition to a rocket mode, allowing spaceflight at speeds up to orbital velocity. Once that was the stuff of science fiction, today our scientists in our two countries are making these things science fact. And we need to do more together to take advantage of these dual-use technologies. So let me finally say, in conclusion, at a time of growing threats, nuclear, conventional, state-based, or terrorists, the United Kingdom is stepping up with bigger and stronger defense. We are increasing our defense budget 
we are increasing the size and power of our armed forces so that we can do more to protect our security. And in so doing, we aim to become an even stronger partner of our most steadfast ally, the United States. Open societies, successful countries like Britain and the United States, attract enemies as well as envy. The more open we are, the harder we must work to ensure that all our people enjoy the security that comes with greater freedoms. As I look ahead to these threats, I recall the words of Karl Popper, who said, we must plan for freedom and not only for security, if for no other reason that only freedom can make security secure. So rather than falling back on the politics of fear or on any council of despair, we need together to plan together for our security, for freedom, and for prosperity. And if we do that, together we can overcome this evil that we face. We can preserve our cherished values. We can open up more opportunities for our people to make their mark. And together, in a darker, more dangerous world, we can continue, the two of us, to be a light amongst nations. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, and thank you all for being here. I, you know, I, I'd sort of like to start at the general and then get into the specific. Um, I think it's clear that over the past five years, Britain has increasingly been seen as a power in, in retreat and not pulling its weight. And that seems to be something that you own, your government owns. I think that um, you've spoken about it, the prime minister spoke about it. Um, as he as he introduced the the security review, and that now it's it's been reversed. Do you think this is because the world has changed, or is it because Britain has changed? Well, first of all, we had to take some painful decisions when we first came into office back in 2010 to restore our public finances and to rebuild our economic security, because you can't have national security without economic security, without being able to afford the defense spending that you want to uh, commit that to. So we have done that now, and it's been a, a painful process, during which we did not, I think, uh, retreat from the world, uh, but during which, um, uh, obviously, we've had to uh, rebuild the, the strength of our armed forces. But we're through that now, and as I've set out, we aim now to uh, uh, to expand our armed forces, to add more manpower, more equipment, a new offer for our personnel. But you're right, it is also clearly in response to the growing threat to our security that has uh, fairly uh, de definitively increased since the previous review to this one back in 2010. We've seen these threats multiply. We've seen them multi increase in complexity. We've seen them increase in concurrency. 
and we need to be ready to respond to that. You spoke, in addition to terrorism, you spoke about state-based threats, and that's, in fact, a big part of the, of the security review. Um, is that directed primarily at Russia, or are there other state-based threats? Well, we've seen a resurgence of uh, Russian uh, aggression that we uh, uh, did not see back in 2010. Uh, that's uh, something new. We'd all hoped that Russia would become more of a, a partner, more of a, um, a, a country that we could uh, trade with and deal with in international fora. Uh, but this attempt in the Crimea and Ukraine to change international borders by force, the uh, uh, constant pressure on the Baltic states, the increase in long-range aviation, the increase in submarine activity means we have to regard now, sadly, Russia as, a, as more of a competitor and a threat that we have to take measures against, uh, not least because of the increase in their own uh, defense uh, spending, both on nuclear and conventional forces. So yes, uh, Russian aggression is something we have to counter, and the Russian threat is something we cannot ignore. But I, I wonder if you see that as the same kind of threat that was posed during the Cold War. Um, we, you know, a nuclear standoff. Um, I wonder, for example, why Britain feels a large part of this additional expenditure is the increased cost of the nu nuclear deterrent, uh, Britain's nuclear deterrent. Is that something that uh, you feel is still necessary vis-a-vis -vis Russia? Is it something that's a wise use? Of, of Britain's resources at a time when the most immediate threats seem to be coming from a, a somewhat different direction. But the whole point of a um, strategic uh, review is not simply, if I may say so, to focus on the very immediate threats, but to try and think ahead to those threats that there are uh, over the horizon. And we look at the nuclear world and we see some 17,000 nuclear weapons out there at the moment. Uh, we see uh, expenditure by Russia on its nuclear program, but also uh, the uh, testing by North Korea of, of, of nuclear weapons and so on. And put it uh, very simply, if we were sure that there was, would be no nuclear threat emerging against our country throughout the 2030s, the 2040s, and the 2050s, right up to 2060, if we could be sure of that, then of course we would, we would uh, have a fresh look at our nuclear deterrent. But we can't be sure of that, given the 17,000 nuclear weapons that are out there, given the instability that we see at the moment, and the possibility of those weapons proliferating into, uh, into evil hands. And that is why we have taken the decision, and it was in our manifesto, and we were elected on this basis, to renew the deterrent that has served us well and has served both our countries well. One of the things uh, in, in the um, security review, as you talk about a, a realignment of spending priorities, is something that I think would uh, be very difficult to do here, which is a, which is a decrease of 30% in the number of civilians um, that work on, in the, I don't know if it's in the ministry or on defense issues in general. Um, and this comes on top of earlier cuts in, in civilian. Uh, how can you, having cut the military, now building it up again, continuing to cut the civilians, it seems to me that it's, it's hard to find a balance in terms of who is going to do all of the work beyond actual war fighting and operating machinery 
Um, how can you get away with that? Well, as you know, we still have a deficit in our public finances, and we have to deal with that deficit by, in overall terms, reducing the size of the public sector and helping to grow the private sector of the economy. And it isn't possible to insulate defense entirely from that. We took a very conscious decision as a government to reduce the amount of spending we spend on our welfare system and to increase the amount of spending overall that we're spending on defense. But in terms of the administration that lies behind it, uh, we have sought greater efficiencies. Now, the actual reduction in the civilian workforce um, will only total 30% when it includes some of the programs that are currently underway mm -hmm. uh, are included in that. Uh, reductions that have been planned since 2010 and reductions that are in, uh, 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 that are planned to start in the next uh, couple of years. So the actual percentage reduction that is additional is I think just under 10% and we have the next four or five years to adjust to that. So it is not as severe as reported. Are there, are there similar cuts in, in other parts of the public sector? Yes, there are worse cuts in other departments. So it was not possible to entirely uh, insulate defense uh, from that overall reduction in the, uh, in the administration of central government. Just to, to move to, to ISIS, um, you said, I, I was struck by something you said in a, in a session just before you left uh, Britain, which was that uh, Britain needed to act when your friends call for help. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that call for help. Um, Obviously, the United States has been involved in Syria for a long time. Most of the people who started out, the Gulf states, certainly Jordan, who started out in the air campaign, they're with them, are not there anymore, uh, or are there only in a very small way. Um, what Should we interpret this as something that just follows the Paris attacks? Was it something that predated that? And what, what form did it take? I mean, does the president call up the prime minister and say, you know, this is not going well, or it's getting worse, or we really need you to participate? Well, first of all, we've been involved right from the start in the coalition, in the campaign in Iraq. We were one of the founder members of that campaign. Right. Of the 60 countries part of the coalition, there are some 20 involved in military action. We've been there from the start. It is our aircraft that have been flying day and night, six days a week ever since then, when, as you say, some of the smaller air forces have had to uh, reduce or, or regenerate. You know, we have been part of that uh, sustained part of that campaign, providing strike in Iraq, flying surveillance and reconnaissance over both Iraq and Syria, and being part of the um, training effort uh, to sustain the Iraqi and the Kurdish forces. So we have been there from the beginning, but we have been very conscious since last summer that the license that Parliament gave us to operate in Iraq was always somewhat artificial, that this was a line in the sand mm. uh, between Iraq and Syria that ISIS itself does not respect, and that it was somewhat illogical to require our own uh, aircraft to turn back at the border and not, um, and not pursue across it. We gave Parliament a very good illustration um, of something that happened early in November where some democratic Syrian forces were under extreme pressure from ISIL, and the nearest plane was an RAF jet some seven minutes away, but couldn't come and help because it meant crossing that artificial line in the sand. 
and it took some 50 further minutes for a coalition aircraft uh, to get there. So we've always been conscious that this has been an artificial decision, but we've had hanging over us um, the vote against action in Syria that was um, taken in 2013. Now, of course, it's true that um, the, um, the terrorist attacks we've seen around the world in Ankara and Beirut and, and in Paris, and you've had it most more recently than that, of course, have uh, increased the call from our allies to come and help. France is our nearest neighbor. We were bound to ask ourselves what would happen if we demand, needed urgent assistance, and the French National Assembly had simply said, you may be our nearest neighbor, but we're not going to do so. Or how our reputation would have stood if the United Nations had passed a resolution calling on all member states to bring their particular capacities to bear to eradicate ISIS, and we as a founder member of the United Nations had not responded to that. Or indeed, the call from the United States for us to bring the precision strike capability that you uh, use as part of the effort in Iraq to bring it to bear in Syria. So all these things, I think, came together and enabled us to, uh, to put this vote back to Parliament and to win it with such a convincing majority. But the, the 2013 vote was, was about bombing Assad. It was a very um, different vote. It was a, a vote to stop Assad using chemical weapons right. against its, his own people. And it was, of course, a vote in the previous Parliament. The composition of our Parliament has changed since then. And the dynamic has changed. We have now a majority Conservative government. So now was the right time to revisit that and, and to put it straight. The president, I think, talked in, in September uh, about going to the Allies and asking for more. Uh, do you think that that would have been possible without the attacks in Paris? Was that the galvanizing uh, situation that really left people, certainly in Britain, uh, as well as in other places, saying, whoa, this does affect us, we need to. Well, it brought this terrorism to within two hours of, of London. So clearly, it, uh, it has a galvanizing effect. But it's also true, the coalition has been urging us for some time uh, to recognize the illogicality of not being able to strike across this completely artificial line in the sand. So as I say, I think all these these, uh, these pressures came, came together, and in the end, we got the right result. There's a lot of criticism in this country, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it, uh, from, certainly from Republicans, but also from, from Democrats, that, that really the, the administration doesn't have a strategy, uh, that its strategy um, of precision bombing um, is not going to do the trick, that if you look at the number of airstrikes uh, over the past year, almost year and a half, it's, it's actually very small compared to other similar campaigns in Afghanistan um, previously. How would you answer people here, as you're here speaking to the American people um, who have been very critical, and, and the public too, according to polls, saying, we don't understand. We don't understand that this is a strategy. We don't understand how it's supposed to work. You say you're going to decimate the Islamic State, and yet they, according to our own military people, um, they're not contained. Well, I'll be reviewing the strategy with Secretary Carter this afternoon, but let me just say one thing. The United States has been at the front of this uh, battle since the 
rapid advance of ISIL last uh, summer. It is the United States that uh, led the international coalition and still leads the international coalition and is providing the huge bulk of the uh, air effort in, in Iraq and also in Syria. Now, some of the, um, the, the there, are, there are limits to the strike capability and the precision strike that the coalition has at its disposal, which is why they particularly wanted our tornadoes, our brimstone missiles, our raptor pods to join in the, the effort. And some of the strike effort in Syria has necessarily had to focus first on close air support of the Kurdish forces in the northeast of Syria. I hope now we're going to see a new focus on the on more deliberate targeting of the infrastructure that supports ISIS. The oil, the, um, the supply routes, the ammunition depots, the logistics, the command and control centers that will enable us to degrade ISIL, stop it resupplying its, uh, its fighters in Iraq and slowly tighten the noose around Raqqa where all this stuff is, is organized and directed and inspired. Are you concerned uh, about as you narrow the area where they're where they're operating again, particularly in Syria, uh, about civilian casualties? Is that something um, in Raqqa? We've heard about human shields, certainly in Ramadi, also in Iraq. Um, is that something that is a big issue in Britain? Uh, oh yes, it is. It's an issue, I think, for all members of the coalition. We all have. Uh, uh, rigorous rules of engagement, slightly different from each country depending on the, on the legal position, but fairly rigorous uh, rules of engagement that um, uh, minimize any risk of collateral damage or civilian casualties. And we've been at pains with the strikes that uh, I've authorized over the last year and a bit in Iraq to make sure that, um, uh, that we absolutely minimize the risk of civilian casualties. And it's also true that um, you know, in the advance uh, to liberate uh, Ramadi, um, obviously the Iraqi forces too and the Kurdish forces are going to do their best to try and limit uh, civilian casualties. Um, they're being held up by IED at the moment. Um, but uh, you, know, n n you know, nobody wants to see any unnecessary civilian casualties as a result. But one answer to that is to use precision airstrike to slowly uh, choke off uh, Raqqa and to ensure that uh, those, um, uh, the, the grip that ISIL has um, can't be reinforced. We're seeing fighters, I think, leaving Ramadi now as the Iraqi forces encircle it. And we need the same to happen in Mosul and in, and in Raqqa over in Syria. Are there any limits on British strikes in Syria? Um, you've started, obviously, as, as part of this broader campaign, to go, uh, as you described, to the oil fields to, to stop the supply lines, to stop the, the uh, shipment of oil as a, as, a, um, as a revenue stream. Do you, does Britain have any limits on where it feels comfortable striking in Syria? In other words, if the campaign moves farther to the west and certainly up into, up into the northwest, Northwest, is that something that you assume Britain would also participate in? Yes, where there are clearly identifiable ISIL targets. Uh, you know, it's not simply the area around Raqqa. ISIL, as you know, 
um, is uh, contesting areas uh, over in the west and indeed down in the south um, and uh, around, uh, around Palmyra too, uh, right over on the, on the eastern side. Uh, wherever ISIL is, we're ready to, uh, to strike, uh, you know, as part, of the, as part of the coalition effort. Maybe if you could just explain a little bit about how that works, how the targeting works. Who decides who hits what target in what time frame? Well, these targets are selected um, by the operational commanders of the coalition um, and uh, through the Air Force component. They're then allocated to the different uh, air forces that uh, are ready to make their aircraft, their strike aircraft available on, on, on any particular uh, day, day or night. So um, um, we are part of that process. But when it comes to the individual target, then that has to be compliant if it's being attacked by British aircraft. It has to be compliant with the rules of engagement that I've set. And if it is a deliberate target, then it has to be authorized by myself or one of my deputies. I'm sorry, I don't understand that. What's the difference between Well, there are what we call target? dynamic targets where yeah. we have close air support uh, above uh, uh, ground forces that are engaged in combat mm -hmm. with the enemy where they can be called in to help uh, deal with particular positions. But there are also deliberate targets like oil well heads, depots, particular buildings and so on where these can be planned in advance where there is a process whereby they are, they are cleared uh, with, with, if the British aircraft are involved, they're cleared with me back in London. The, it's it's a, become a truism here that, uh, and I'm sure in your government, that there will be no victory without adequate ground forces, um, both in, in Syria and in Iraq. We talked about how, even as the US and the UK have been upping, along with France and some others, they're their participation, the, certainly the Arab Gulf states have decreased um, their participation. Um, there's been some talk about, about uh, having an Arab ground force. Um, some of the states, the Emiratis, have said they would participate in that. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any interest on the part of the Saudis. How important do you think that is and how much of a problem is it that the regional governments, um, certainly in, in, the, in the Gulf, I'm not talking about Turkey, but, but even Jordan, have actually decreased their, their participation in this campaign. How important is it for them to be major visible players and how, what would change if they were willing to put in a ground force? Would that be a good thing? Well, in the end, there have to be ground forces there. There have to be ground forces to be able to offer security, particularly to the Sunni areas, as, the, as ISIS is thrown out of the uh, uh, towns and cities and villages that it occupies. There have to be ground forces that can offer that security, just as there will be. Um, that security will be provided by the Iraqi for forces and the National Guard when it's fully established, as ISIS is pushed uh, west along the Euphrates over on the Iraqi side. There are moderate uh, opposition forces there who've been fighting Assad for the last uh, four years, um, and they will need to be deployed against, uh, against ISIL. What is clear is that those forces can't be Western forces. Uh, Prime Minister Abadi put this very forcibly to me in the summer when I was last in Baghdad. He does not want British troops, or with great respect, American troops on the ground fighting his battle for him. He knows that in the end, 
the security in these areas can only be underpinned by local forces, homegrown forces that are locally supported and can win the confidence of the, of the Sunni areas. So this will have to be done by um, homegrown forces, um, perhaps with the support, as you say, of other, of other regional players as well. Do you, do you think that that's very likely to get a Sunni Arab regional force to go in? Well, what's encouraging now about the political track that's now underway is that all those, all the countries involved, all the neighbors are part of this process and realize that this civil war has to be brought to an end and I hope will be part of leading Syria to a new future, helping in the reconstruction and yes, um, becoming, uh, becoming part of the process of helping to train and equip and, uh, and uh, sustain some Syrian security force that can be developed that will enable us on the ground to finally get rid of ISIS in its heartland. Are you disappointed with, the, with what they've put into this effort so far? Well, e each of the countries in, a, you know, in the coalition, uh, they're all helping in their own way. Some have been helping militarily, some have been helping financially, some have been helping with uh, logistics. Um, increasingly, they're all part of the uh, strategic communications effort now to tackle the ideology. And more and more of them, as you will hear, are part of the uh, network that is firming up to deny the finance, the access of ISIS to the international financial system. So they're all helping in their own particular way, so I'm not going to single any of them out for criticism, not least because it is only now that Britain is joining in the campaign in <laughs> Syria. What, do you hear anything about the, about the political meeting in, in Riyadh and what the outcome of that is? Well, I've seen a readout of the, the talks that went on yesterday. That was, uh, if I can put it like this, that was you know, day one of a political process that has to now unfold. It's clearly going to take weeks and months to get agreement on some kind of transitional settlement that will eventually lead to a new government in Syria and how the various groups that are committed to a more plural Syria will shape up and be part of that. You know, that were, that, the most encouraging thing over the last couple of months is the, you know, is the support f for that now from Saudi Arabia, from Iran, from Russia, from uh, most of the players involved uh, who've been fighting Assad. That process is underway and we need to encourage it. I, I apologize because I didn't know we were going to have audience Q&A, but we are now, so we, have, we don't have a whole lot of time left. So just to get in as many questions as we can, um, if you please be as brief as you can. Sir, back there. Had his hand up first. Uh, thank you, Rahim Rashidi with Kurdistan TV. Please, what is your opinion of Kurdish forces Peshmerga role in fight against ISIS? And after Paris attacks, how important is it to arm the Kurdish Peshmerga directly by UK and allies? Thank you. Well, thank you. I saw for myself uh, on my recent visit to Erbil the Peshmerga in training. And uh, I have nothing but admiration for the fight that Peshmerga have got, have got involved uh, in against uh, ISIS. They are truly the, the bravest of the brave in the way they've taken the fight to uh, ISIS. We have supplied um, a large amount of equipment to them, and we're continuing to train, uh, to continue to provide the training that uh, they're going to need, not least in dealing with the uh, um, improvised explosive devices that they're encountering. But the answer is nothing but admiration. Yes, sir. Uh, good morning, uh, Secretary. My question is really, uh, if I 
Could you identify yourself? Sure, Sorry. I'm Patrick Wilson with SAS Global Strategy. Good to see you again. Um, my question is actually some advice for the American people. Uh, the recent attacks uh, in Southern California signal a change in America's posture about the possibility of domestic terrorism. I know that you, having grown up in the UK, you experienced a, two decades of persistent threat of domestic terrorism. And I wonder if now, sitting in your, your perch, uh, if you have some advice for the American people about uh, countering such a threat. Well, it's not really for me to advise uh, advise America on, on these issues. We have lived with terrorism, uh, Republican terrorism from, uh, from uh, Northern Ireland, uh, you know, for many years. When, and we've all now seen these attacks. We've seen attacks in Ankara, in Beirut, in Paris, uh, in Denmark, and, and elsewhere. And we've had them too on the streets of London. So we're all naturally looking to our own homeland security, doing more to uh, share intelligence, to prevent radicalization, but above all, to focus on where all this is coming from. And in the end, that takes you to northeast Syria. It is from there these attacks are being directed, organized, inspired, financed. Uh, and that, in the end, is, is, you know, is where we need to step up. And I'm delighted that Britain is, is now fully stepping up. Yes, ma'am. Hi, uh, I'm Yasmin Tajdeh with National Defense Magazine. I wanted to ask about that innovation unit you mentioned earlier. Uh, so you kind of compared it to DIUX that we have over here. Does the UK have its own kind of Silicon Valley that you can tap into? Do you plan to do uh, work with our DIUX? How's that gonna work? Well, as I said, we want to learn from you and to collaborate uh, more with you. I've been impressed by the way in which you've been able to tap into some of the, um, the fizz, if I can call it that, of these smaller high-tech uh, companies and bring their applications to bear on, uh, on defense solutions. So we're setting up uh, uh, a defense solutions center. And traditionally, we've put uh, tenders out there. We've said, we want a frigate or we want a plane. Uh, who wants to build it for us? What we've not said to our high-tech center is, you come and tell us what solutions you've got to some of the challenges, some of the uh, uh, technologies that our adversaries are employing. So we are setting up a defense solution center, inviting the smaller companies to come to us and put uh, solutions on the table. We're putting some challenge funding there, so we'll run uh, uh, competitions. We're setting a new target for our, uh, the proportion of our defense spend that will go to uh, small companies, small and medium-sized enterprises. We're gonna up that to 25% of our total spend to try and uh, attract more of this, this brain power into defense. Um, yes, sir. Let's try to do a few in a row. We'll probably try to do three questions and then uh, go ahead. Sure. Thanks, sir. Uh, Aaron Meta with Defense News. The P8s aren't going to be online until 2020, I believe, is the, the year they're going to come on. So. Are there discussions with the U.S. about some sort of stopgap capability, given the uh, apparent threat from Russian submarines that have been appearing in the last year? Okay. And there, why don't you just hand it, hand it right there, and we'll do those two there. Uh, David Smith of The Guardian. Um, CNN is running a story at the moment um, saying that you've been talking about uh, much closer coordination with Russia the, within Syria that... Uh, 
that the UK and Russia are actually going to collaborate much more closely. I just wonder if you could elaborate on that. Right, and the third one was where? Go ahead. Hi. Uh, Sydney Friedberg, Breaking Defense. Speaking of Russia, uh, we've obviously spoken a lot about Syria, but you, all, you mentioned that there are nation-state threats. Given limited resources, how do you develop a military that can deal with both the ISIS, ISIL kind of threat and the very different requirements of a nation-state threat? Right. Well, on the first one, uh, are there going to be discussions about um, um, accelerating the arrival of the P-8? I think it was the gist of your question. Uh, and the stopgap capability. Uh, yes, there will be discussions, and I hope they will be this afternoon. Um, <laughs> Uh, because we need uh, the increase in Russian submarine activity and the development of successor, we need to uh, we need to enhance that capability as uh, as quickly as we can. On the second question about um, collaboration with with Russia, no, there's not collaboration. Um, there have been discussions uh, with Russia about uh, setting up um, um, some means of avoiding any miscalculation with its long-range aviation. We've seen a number of incursions into the, uh, into the British flight information region over recent months, and we've been pressing for ways of avoiding any uh, miscalculation or accident because these aircraft have not been responding uh, to communications from air traffic control or indeed from signals from the planes that we send up to intercept them. And there was discussion of that, I think, yesterday at a meeting, uh, at a meeting over in, uh, in Moscow. We will, of course, through our action in Syria, come under the Memorandum of Understanding. There has already been, if you're referring to the Middle East theater, there is already a Memorandum of Understanding uh, between the United States and Russia to ensure that, um, um, to, main, to ensure that um, air safety is not uh, compromised in, uh, in the operations that are going on. Uh, so far as um, the, you know, the balance between state threats and non-state threats, yes, I mean, that's what this uh, review was all about. And we have concluded that we have to deal with both. And we need forces that are agile enough and flexible enough to be able to cope with both uh, types of threat, which is why we are reconfiguring our army into the strike brigades that I uh, uh, described and why we are giving our special forces more uh, strike capability to be able to move at... Uh, a greater distance and in greater mass to be able to deploy in, uh, in larger packets of personnel. Thank you all so much, and thank you, Mr. Secretary.